Well, I'd like to welcome you to Hope Church for those of you who are, who are here for the very first time. Um, and I, I have a, a, a small commitment in my life, and that is to not waste my life. I came across a book by uh, John Piper with the title, Don't Waste Your Life. And that, that statement is an interesting one. And it makes me about, think about times in my life when I have uh, wasted time or had experiences where I felt like they were a complete waste of time. Like that, that time when you get on hold for like three hours, and then you finally get a hold of a human being and then the phone gets disconnected. No one knows what I'm talking about. I've, I've had that, that painful experience. Or uh, this one stands out for me. My, my sister-in-law, when she was in high school, she was committed to, she's from Canal Fulton here in Ohio, she was committed to finding the perfect prom dress. And so she'd shopped around here for a while and she knew we were in seminary at the time, Allie and I in Dallas. And so she flew to Dallas to shop. And there are places to shop in Texas, I will tell you that. And uh, she shopped to find the per perfect uh, prom dress and she felt like she found it. And um, on, in her luggage on the way home, uh, American Airlines lost her bag. Uh, and, and it's not been found since. So you kind of wonder, like, is it going to show up still or whatever? So the perfect quest for the perfect dress and then it felt like a complete waste of time. Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to describe something today in God's Word where he's going to talk about um, living a life in such a way that we do not run or labor in vain. Uh, that, that phrase, um, it, it is similar to me to this idea of being disqualified or missing out or choosing to cross the line. You think of sports where there's rules and, uh, and there's opportunities that you have, but it, you can do an incredible thing and then step outside the line or be disqualified and miss out on the blessing uh, that's in front. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's challenging us in God's word to not be people who waste our life. And this morning, I'm going to challenge you as we turn our hearts and minds to God's word to look at a couple of verses that are in the book of Philippians chapter two. Uh, what we're going to see in Philippians chapter two is the apostle Paul, who is at the end of his life, articulating to us how he recommends that we ought to live our lives. And we're going to see for him that the way he challenges us not to waste our lives is to choose to live for the Lord, to give him the glory he deserves, to have a great attitude. Uh, today, we'll talk about it a lot, but I think there's a way for us to choose to, um, to grumble and be sad. I think that that's a pattern for some of us, or we can choose to rejoice and be glad. And we'll see the Apostle Paul in the last verses that we studied today talk about rejoicing together. I think that there's also an opportunity that, that when it comes to not wasting our life that God's word challenges us in, and that is to be people who choose to lift others up instead of pulling them down. So, so here's the thing that I understand about my God, is that he loves me, he has, um, he has placed me in a world that's broken, we'll, we'll talk about it today, it's described as being a, a generation that's twisted, um, in a way it's, it's talked about as being corrupted, and he's saying, we live in a dark world, it's, it's challenging, we live in a difficult place. But he gives me, uh, he gives you and I the opportunity to decide how we're going to live in that broken world. Um, now, do you, guys, do you guys remember the old song that we used to sing, that this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine? You guys want to sing it with me? No? Okay. So, so you know that. So, so I want us to capture today, the Apostle Paul is going to describe our light in a dark world like it's a star or like a sun. I want you to think about the millions 
of miles away that the sun is, and yet it is still so bright that we still get sunburns in Northeast Ohio, right? So, so we recognize that it's not just a little light that he's asking us to have, but he's asking us to live in such a way. This is really a major point this morning is that, that people notice it. And I want to encourage you this morning. He's, he's going to talk about choices that you make. And these choices aren't just for the old people in the room. They're not just for, for those of us who have, have had, um, that are responsible for others and challenges and parents. It's actually choices I think every single person in this room gets to make to decide in some ways, we'll see it in the text, to be in their, under their circumstances or above them. And so we're going to see in this series that we've been talking about what it means for us to live with incredible joy. That's the series your parents have been going through. So kids, do you want to look at your parents left or right and give them a grade on how good of a job they're doing with joy in your household? Uh, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. So, um, but that's something that we've been working on to recognize and represent the joy of the Lord in our lives. As we turn to our Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12, and I'm just going to read through verses 12 through 18, and I want you to hear, this is one of those passages of Scripture that's probably worth memorizing. It's one of those passages of Scripture that talks to us specifically about a way we can live in a world that doesn't always go according to our plan. It says this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, therefore, my beloved. Uh, now, now, I want to stop there for a second and just, just remind you that this passage of Scripture was written by the Apostle Paul while he was under house arrest, uh, probably in Rome, and he's writing back to the church in Philippi, a church that he helped to plant. He had relationships. He knew people by name there. And so he's writing to people that he loves and he's saying to them, this is the best counsel, best advice, best encouragement that I can give you, which helps me want to listen up when I read it. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That last, that last phrase, for his good pleasure, there, um, um, Oswald Chambers used to uh, wrote a very meaningful devotional with the title, My Upmost for His Highest. I think that captures this idea that we want to be people who give our best for God's glory. And here he's saying this is what we pursue deliberately is his joy, his good pleasure. And if we do that, it allows us to experience the meaning that God desires for us in our life. He goes on to say in verse 14, do everything, all things without grumbling or disputing. I'm going to admit right now that that's hard. I'm going to admit right now that that some of us, we really enjoy to grumble, to dispute, to, to, to wrestle with our circumstances in such a way to say, this isn't fair, this isn't right, um, this isn't meeting my expectations. And he says, do everything without grump. Uh, some of you are still questioning, if I brought up certain vegetables, would some of you uh, on your plate grumble or dispute? Okay, I get it. So, so do everything without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That phrase there implies that, that the world around us is pretty messed up. 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's where we get the title this morning, To Not Waste Your Life. So, so here I see this, this phrase, rejoice and be glad with me is what he's saying. Uh, or we can choose to grumble and be sad. Verse 17, it says, even if I'm to be bored out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Think that this is what it looks like for us. The first point this morning is that we find our joy being fully devoted to the Lord. We find our joy by living for his joy. Um, this is what it means for us to focus in on what's most essential, what's most important. So here Paul gives us this hint as to how somebody who can be chained under house arrest not know if he's going to die. That's what he means when he says being poured out as a drink offering. He's saying that I may, my life may be ended here. This may be something that is, that it's done. This is the last chapter of my life. How you can be in the valley of the shadow of death. And yet you can still find yourself standing back and being able to say, wait a second, I want to still do life for his good pleasure. I think that that's because the Apostle Paul chose to live in his choices to bring joy to the Lord. In, his, in the text in verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now um, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what I see here in the text is that there's some work that God asks us to do. There's a responsibility. There's a commandment that we're being challenged to do. And, and in a way, um, I think for some of us, we look at this and it feels a little bit troubling because it sounds like he's saying, work for your salvation. Um, and, and we understand that that is not what he's teaching. Passages of scripture like Ephesians 2.8 say, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not by your works so that any man can boast. God's already done the work of salvation for those of us who've accepted Christ. Amen. Uh, God has done the ultimate work of justification. He died on the cross declaring us righteous um, for those who've received the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're talking about here is about sanctification, how we work out our faith and what it means for us to strengthen our faith. Now, are they still doing gym class these days? Kids, you guys have gym class? Some of you are like, I'm on Zoom all the time. So, uh, okay, so they're still doing gym class. So I remember um, that first time that you went through gym class and one of the teachers maybe asks you to run a mile. And the first time they ask you to run a mile or maybe do 10 push-ups or something like that, if you're honest, you feel like you're going to die, right? Like that there's, you know, the time is not great. Uh, maybe you're, you're frustrated because, but, but there's something about the exercise process that God built inside of us that you do it more times. You, you keep practicing. And then at some point, you grow strong in the process. That's the word that's used to describe it. It's saying, work it out strengthen your faith, put it to the test, be active in your faith. And I think that that description is actually quite important. So no one else can do that 
for you, actually. They can set up for you the opportunity for you to grow. Our teachers try to do that in our kids' ministry classes. Uh, we try to do that in our settings. We want to stretch you out of your comfort zone. We want you to be stretched. And we also want you to ask, this is really important for me personally, working out my faith has required me to ask some of the hardest questions about my faith. Why do I believe that? Why do I think it's true? What is it that this has? So even the theological question that comes up today is, is the Bible saying, is the Apostle Paul saying that you earn your salvation? Well, actually, no. What he's saying is we can work on our faith in such a way that it gets stronger. By the way, every person in this room, if you do not prepare for that work, when you rub up against a twisted and perverse generation, as it's described, they will test you. They will ask you hard questions. They will challenge your understanding, your wisdom and knowledge of truth in such a way that it will challenge you. So in other words, what we're saying is go to work, do the hard work of wrestling with your faith. Um, this is something that requires our ability to engage intellectually and also in some ways practically. I like the way Kenneth Woost puts it when he says, this is not just a let go and let God affair, but this is a take hold with God business. It is a mutual cooperation with the Holy Spirit and an interest with, um, in an interest and in, in activity in the things of God. The saint must not merely rest in the Holy Spirit for victory over sin in the production of a holy life. He must, in addition to this dependence upon the Spirit, say a positive no to sin and to exert himself in the doing of what is right. So, so this is a hard thing. This is a challenging thing, and we have work to do. Here's the best part about it. We don't have to do this heavy lifting alone. Now, we are grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit, that God and the Holy Spirit are doing the heavy lifting of this work. I think we also contribute to it in our own growth, in our own life. And then, like we're told in Scripture, like iron sharpens iron, so one, no one in sharpens another. Uh, this, this passage of Scripture describes this in a plural way. Work out y'all's salvation. Um, and, I, and I think that that's a helpful image for us, that this is something we do together. So, so we've got work to do. The second thing that I think helps us to not waste our life is to understand, and this may be the most valuable thing that I'll share with you today, is that you and I get to choose our mindset. These words that are in this text are very significant. When the Apostle Paul describes doing all things without grumbling or disputing, he's saying something that I think helps me to understand that he just knows me. So, so if I put myself in the Apostle Paul's shoes, he, he didn't do something that was wrong. He's being falsely condemned. He is under house arrest. He still has to pay for the home that he's living in. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. Um, he doesn't have the freedom to be the person that we believe God called him to be when it comes to being a missionary representing the love of Christ. That I'm guessing for him that, that he had reason to be frustrated, Right? Uh, some of us get frustrated when our milkshake is too thin, right? Uh, my, my daughter works at Dairy Queen, and she's like, Dad, you would not believe the stuff that people say to me. I think she tried like five times yesterday to get the right viscosity uh, of a milkshake for someone. Failed the whole time, right? So we, we, we have reasons in our life to be frustrated, to, to grumble at times maybe, or to be discouraged. That's actually what the Apostle Paul is telling us that we don't have the right to do. 
So when he says, in everything, do not grumble or dispute. I want to unpack those two words. So the grumbling word um, is, is a word that, that basically says we're, we're, we're describing our frustration. And I want you to catch this. When we're describing our frustration, um, we can be like the person. You guys know that lifeguards often carry with them those floats. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, they carry with them those, they call them torpedoes, I think, when I was trained, and the plastic ones as a lifeguard. Um, but, but part of the reason why they do that is they recognize that when you're helping to try to save someone, it's possible in that time period, especially in a lake or a deeper place, it's easy for another person to pull someone else down. And, and so you need something else to help keep you afloat. I want you to catch this, that when we talk about grumbling that what happens is that it is infectious. And it is possible that others receive what we're saying and what it leads to is great discouragement. So when I say rejoice and be glad or complain and be sad, that there's a part of that, that it's actually what happens in life. This next thing, disputing, is a very interesting term. It, it has uh, multiple aspects of, of it, but it ultimately means that when someone has stated something that you argue that you're in, uh, it's been described as being intellectually rebellious against what's being said. You always pay attention to the counterpoint, the legal deliberation, the contentious debate, the argument, the strong opinion, the hesitation, the doubting of authenticity. I think that these can, can weave together to cause something that the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, C.S. Lewis, described as cherished grudges says that we have the tendency to hold things together in our life in such a way that it's a grudge and we want to be able to have the right to hold others to it because we're frustrated, angry, bitter, discouraged. The classic example in scripture is of the Israelites when they were leaving from Egypt. So you remember they were oppressed under horrific slavery. Um, God sets them three, free through the plagues and, and they complain, we want a different leader. Um, God provided for them meals from heaven, right? We, we talk about heaven. They, they said, no, we want happy meals or we want something else, right? We, we expect something better. Uh, God provided for them water to drink in the desert. And you know what they said? Well, we, we want sweeter water. When they were on the footsteps of the promised land, they looked over the walls and the fortresses and they said, those people are too big, too strong. We want a different. In fact, there was a moment in their history and their grumbling where they said, we just want to go back to slavery. I, I read that and I'll be honest, I read about myself in that. I read about my natural temptation to look at my circumstances and for me to say, this isn't what I expected. I want something different. Isn't it incredible that the man who penned these words was under what I would consider some of the worst types of circumstances? And yet his last words that he says to us, rejoice and be glad. Um, you understand that he's saying something that's like a sun shining in the darkness, that it's pretty radical what he's choosing to say. So, so Paul knows our natural tendency when he says do all things without grumbling or disputing. I don't know what the issues were at the church in Philippi, but I can say very comfortably, if it was a church made up with people like me that are broken, that don't always make the right decisions, don't always get things right, that there'd be reasons for people to be discouraged or frustrated. And yet at the end of the day, his response back 
is that we have a choice in our life to either rejoice and be glad or we can choose to be people who grumble and are sad. Uh, I like this, this description. So the, um, one of the books that's influenced the series we're going through is by Chuck Swindoll, and its title is Laugh Again. I love the book, and um, in that book, you know, some of you are going to question me, uh, but I'll encourage you to purchase a, um, a copy of this book, um, because in there he references uh, something that was published in the, New, the Los Angeles Times, uh, an article that was written by Barry Siegel. And he talked about the things in the world that we live in that give us anxiety. Um, and he talked about what happens when we extrapolate. If you know what that term means, it means that we take something and we, we say, all right, because of this, then 10 years from now, it'll probably be this based on current trends. And so in his book, Laugh Again, Chuck Swindoll quotes this article. And the title of it is, The World May End with a Splash. Barry Siegel writes these words, alarmists... Worrying about such matters as global wars and pesticide poisoning may be overlooking much more dire catastrophes. Consider what some scientists are predicting. If everyone keeps stacking National Geographic magazines, you guys know the yellow ones. Um, if people keep stacking their National Geographic magazines in garages across America and attics instead of throwing them away, the magazine's weight will sink the continent 100 feet sometime soon. And all, we will all be inundated by the oceans. Or, here's another possibility, if the number of microscope specimen slides submitted to one St. Louis hospital laboratory continues to increase at its current rate, this city will be buried under three feet of glass by the year 2044. Um, if it doesn't scare you, then if beachgoers keep returning home with as much sand clinging to them as they do now, 80% of the country's coastline will disappear within 10 years. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You've read those articles. You're going to read those articles today. You're going to say, wow, they're quite alarming. Um, now, some of you know that I don't love the pickle, right? You guys know this. I'm not a huge fan of the pickle. Um, some of you are praying for me. Um, but uh, this is actually in the book. God, I want you to read this. I did not make this up. It says, if that, um, it says, uh, it has been reported that pickles cause cancer, communism, airline tragedies, auto accidents, and crime waves. <laughs> it says, about 99.9% .9 of cancer victims had eaten pickles at some time in their life. Some have 100, um, so have 100% of all soldiers, 96.8 of all communist sympathizers, and 997 of those involved in car um, and auto and air accidents. Moreover, those born in 1839 who ate pickles have suffered 100% mortality rate. <laughs> and um, rats in laboratories force-fed 20 pounds of pickles a day for a month ended up with bulging abdomens and a loss of appetite. <laughs> we, we recognize that there are reasons why we read some things and we extrapolate them and they frighten us. They're discouraging. They're, they're frightening uh, and I, I want to recognize in this context of the text that part of what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. But what I do know is the God who's been faithful to me my entire life. So I don't know how difficult tomorrow is going to be. But what I do understand 
is that I get to choose the mindset that I have when I go through difficult circumstances. So students, for those of you who haven't been with us, kids, we've been talking about the difference in this series of being under our circumstances versus being above our circumstances. And here, the Apostle Paul describes, I think, what it looks like to be above your circumstances. Uh, what it means to look and act differently than the world that's around us. It says this in verse 15. He says, that you may be blameless, uh, faultless, that you may be innocent, that you may be children of God without blemish, literally above reproach. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights, or other translations translate this stars, which is literally that word that's used here. So we understand that stars are used to give direction sometimes, right? We understand that stars are powerful and, and they contain their own um, light that is able to pierce darkness. I think that this contained in this idea, this, this reality that our sun is 92.4 million miles away and yet it is so bright that it literally changes our world. Our world functions around the sun. I think when in John 8, 12, it says to us that you are the light of the world. I think it helps us to understand what God's asking of us. He's asking us to light up the darkness. And I think that this is what God is asking of us to be. He's asking us to shine as lights in the world and then he tells us how to do that. Holding fast, by holding fast to the word of life. I think that's containing both scriptural truth and also the message of the gospel. When it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's a reference to Jesus. Holding fast to the Lord so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, when we get to heaven and receive the word, rewards that we have earned through the life that we've lived at the judgment seat of Christ, that there's a recognition that we've done well, that we've finished the race. So these words, blameless, innocence, without blemish, um, in a twisted and perverted generation, messed up generation, there's, there's something there that's quite profound. I think that there's a part of our circumstances that Paul's challenging us that we can choose to live underneath or we can choose to live above them. I want to challenge you in this area. My dad um, and my three brothers uh, and I went on a whitewater rafting trip to West Virginia several years ago. And uh, my dad's not a big swimmer. He's, he's kind of tall, uh, six foot four, and he never really felt comfortable. I think he missed the whole swim lessons when he was a kid thing. And so my dad did, does not like to be in deep water, especially when there's rapids and rocks and boulders and all those things. So I, I was, um, we were going to the New River in West Virginia with my brothers. We're super excited about this whitewater rafting trip. And on the way there, my dad says probably 15 times, hey, uh, I just, just want to make sure I'm not going to pop out of the boat and get stuck underneath it. Okay. All right, dad. Gotcha. Hey, hey, just want to really, you know, you know, I'm really concerned. I don't want to get knocked out of the boat, stuck under the boat. Um, and, and he said it multiple times. Now up to that point, I'd probably done the new river maybe, maybe a half dozen times. And I, I said, dad, I've never had that happen before. Uh, you don't have anything to worry about. Well, sure enough, we get out there on the water. Guess who gets knocked out of the boat um, and gets stuck underneath um, the raft? It's, it's my dad. 
And, um, but, but you know what he did? This is important. Like, so, so he's under the boat. He was worried about it. He thought a lot about it. He actually had, had thought through what would happen if this happens. And you know what he did? He's wearing a life jacket and helmet. He just slid out from underneath the boat, right? Just pulled him. We pulled him in. He's wet. Looks like a wet dog. Um, he still hasn't forgiven me for it. Sorry, Dad. Um, but, but, but I want you to catch this. And I think this is part of what Paul's saying. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm, I'm going to die uh, probably because of how vocal I've been for my faith. This is what he's saying. And yet, I, I'm asking you to rejoice and be glad. I am articulating what it means for us to be people who live above our circumstances versus getting stuck underneath them. Some of us in this room are stuck underneath our circumstances. But, but when we don't get stuck under our circumstances, I just want to celebrate the last point this morning, and that is people notice. Like people are aware when you, like Paul, we're looking at this, we're like, how could he write these words? Well, it's because he understands his relationship with God. I think he says this in, in a beautiful way, um, and he shows us what it means to choose joy in such a way that others notice it. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, uh, what, what's he talking about there? Well, this, this ceremony was common in both pagan settings, and also there's a recording of this in the book of Numbers, that, that there would have been a time period often uh, where uh, towards the end of a meal of dedication or a special time of offering, that, that the prized wine or the most precious drink that was available in the time would be poured out on the ground. And, and there's probably those who watch this happen like, ah, you know, that's, that's valuable, that's precious. Um, and he's, he's using that description of that ceremony to basically say, my, my life might be over right now. Like I might, I might be finishing this I might be poured out, but notice what the text says as an offering for your faith. This is what he's aspiring to, is that they understand what it means to strengthen their faith and be strong even after he's gone. And so this last act of sacrificial um, uh, co contribution or um, maybe giving the, this, this wine or dumping something that's precious and valuable out um, it symbolized the dedication of a person to God and worship. And here Paul's just saying, I'm in. If I, even if I have to do this, um, even if it comes right to the end, I want to live a life that's well invested, um, not, not wasted. And so it's kind of ironic that here they're talking about wasting something. And he's like, I just want to have lived a life that at the end God can say to me, basically, well done, good and faithful servant. So I just want to ask you, what kind of lifestyle are you living? Um, are, do you look more like the twisted and perverse generation that's around us? Uh, do you look more like the darkness that's around us? Are you content with letting your little light shine uh, when somebody asks you about it? Or are you radiating the glory and joy of the Lord that could even overcome something as incredible as the darkness that threatens his very life? Um, I think that God's asked us to be people who live for him, uh, that have a good attitude when we do it, and uh, the kind of life that chooses to lift others up. That is what it looks like to have a life well invested, not a life that is wasted. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, uh, has this statement, and I find it to be helpful as we close. He says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. 
But you do have to know the few great things that truly matter. Perhaps just one and then be willing to live for them and ultimately die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by the one great thing. And that is the thing that I think the Apostle Paul is describing here. He's just saying, I've desired to grow my faith in such a way that others see it and frankly, that they can't ignore it. And so he's inviting you and I to the table of rejoicing with him. Not saying life's easy. He's actually not saying that your circumstances will go according to plan. Um, but what he is suggesting is if you do this, um, you can experience the kind of joy that allows you to rejoice even in the midst of great challenge. Um, are you up for that? You open to consider what it means for you to not be under your circumstances, but to be above them. I think if you do that, I think you're going to find great joy in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, I confess this morning that as we talk about this, that it is, I think, native language at times for me to complain or to grumble. And I just want to pray um, for our circumstances and our ability to learn from what the Apostle Paul has invited us to enter into. And that is to have the kind of joy that overcomes even the most painful circumstances of life. I thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient for us. You're good. You know our needs more than we do. And I pray for strong faith that when it's tested would not sink, but instead it would overcome. We thank you and praise you for this morning. I thank you for your word that promises us that it will not return void. I pray that as we give to you our tithes and offerings this morning, that you would receive them, not grudgingly or out of necessity, um, but instead, Lord, that you would receive them as a gift that's uh, honoring to you, that's a form of our worship. So as we close our time out praising you, I also pray that you would receive our offerings as a form of worship to you, um, believing in our hearts that you're worthy of our best. We love you and thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.